Welcome to Series 2 of the Saltwater Strategist, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jen Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics and international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. This episode of the Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by BAE Systems Australia. I think we have to consider strategies that are aimed at countering gray zone activities as important to overall deterrence. We should be aware that the more we allow China to break international norms and to get away with its salami slicing tactics, the greater the chance of conflict. Today, we're going to be discussing maritime security and Chinese gray zone activity. We are lucky to be joined by Lisa Curtis, who is a senior fellow and director of the Indo-Pacific Security Program at the Center for New American Security. Lisa is a true luminary in the fields of foreign policy and national security, with over two decades of dedicated service in various key roles within the US government, including the National Security Council, CIA, State Department and Capitol Hill. Lisa's impressive career has been marked by her dedication to shaping US policy in the Indo-Pacific and South Asia regions. Notably, she played a pivotal role in coordinating the U.S.-South Asia strategy and expanding Quad Security Corporation during her tenure as the Deputy Assistant to the President and the NSC Director for South and Central Asia. She has been recognised with the Secretary of Defence Medal for Outstanding Public Service and has made significant contributions through her research, media appearances and congressional testimonies. Her insights into the U.S.-India strategic relations, counterterrorism and China's role in the region are invaluable. Lisa, we're really pleased to have you on our podcast today. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. So Lisa, really fascinated to chat to you today about uh, maritime security, uh, a passion of mine, and China's grey zone activities in the South China Sea. Now, grey zone is one of those terms often used, often thrown around. As we get into the conversation, I'd probably like to start with, what does that mean to you? When I think of gray zone activities, I think of steps that countries take to try to change the status quo through either coercive military, political, or economic means that fall below the threshold that would prompt a conventional military response. So we're not talking only about military activity. Gray zone actions can be in the information space, diplomatic, you know, economic coercion, um, and they're usually implemented gradually over time. We refer to them as salami slicing tactics, and they blur the nature of activities that really tie the hands of the responder, and they make it difficult for the responder to develop deterrent strategies in advance of the activities themselves. So, If you're talking about gray zone activities in the maritime space, this includes things like deploying maritime militias or Coast Guard operatives who are really disguised as fishermen. And they're there to intimidate, 
coerce and uh, try to shape the environment. You can see countries using water cannons, uh, much like we saw China do with the Philippines uh, just a few weeks ago, sailing too close to vessels, even bumping vessels. So it's all these kinds of things that a country does to try to assert their maritime claims or just intimidate or coerce the other nation. You mentioned uh, water cannoning and, and there was the, the, the concerning imagery that came out in August this year of a Chinese Coast Guard vessel water cannoning a uh, Filipino vessel that was heading to resupply its vessel at Second Thomas Shop. Not the first time this has happened, but it really did capture the imagination, certainly uh, of the press and, and the general public to some extent uh, in Australia. What other examples are we seeing in the Indo-Pacific region of uh, China and China predominantly, I'm assuming, using these tactics? And what are their objectives in using these tactics? If we're talking about gray zone activity in Southeast Asia, we would have to look at the Paracel Islands, which are claimed by China, Taiwan, and Vietnam, uh, the Scarborough Shoal, and the Spratly Islands, which are claimed by Taiwan, China, and the Philippines. But we've also seen examples in the North Natuna Sea, um, in northern Indonesia. So, you know, we see this happening in different parts of the region. And you raise the Philippines, which I think is, is a good example, because not only did we see the water cannons that you uh, referred to when the Philippines was trying to resupply the Sierra Madre in the Spratly Islands, earlier in the year, we saw the Chinese uh, lasering using military-grade lasers trained on a Philippine vessel that, again, was trying to supply the Sierra Madre and blinding the crew temporarily. Uh, So that's yet another example. And, you know, we saw Chinese gray zone activity against the Philippines going back to, uh, well, going back several years, but uh, in 2021, the Chinese Coast Guard disguised themselves as fishermen Uh, There was 200 vessels that were outside of Mischief Reef in this uh, Spratly Island um, and trying to, you know, intimidate the Philippines and deny their ability to access this area. So we've, we've seen quite a few examples in the last few years. Vietnam is another uh, place where we have seen Chinese maritime aggression. And in March of this year, the Chinese Coast Guard sailed very close to oil and gas wells that belonged to Vietnam, and you almost had a a close encounter between a Chinese and Vietnamese uh, patrol boat. So I think, you know, we see it in many different areas in the South China Sea. And I think, you know, China is trying to assert its military claims in these disputed areas. And in the case of Vietnam, um, trying to deny them the ability to access, you know, oil reserves in their exclusive economic zone. Uh, So they they really are trying to dominate the maritime space in this region. And, you know, even though we've seen some concerning behavior in the Indian Ocean region, for example, it's not the same that we're seeing in the South China Sea. Clearly, in the South China Sea, the focus is asserting their maritime claims, trying to dominate in the region. Uh, whereas in the Indian Ocean region, they're starting to make inroads in there. And they, and they have been able to access, of course, Sri Lanka's ports. And actually, they're getting ready to dock a surveillance vessel 
um, at a Sri Lankan port, uh, just like they did a year ago, which is concerning for a country like India. It's in India's backyard. They could use this vessel to spy on Indian military bases and and other assets in the region. So I think we can think about that as a, a gray zone activity of a different kind. And so you talked about China's approach to gray zone activities in the South China Sea, and you use this term salami slicing, uh, which is often talked about in terms of their strategy in the maritime domain. Do you mind expanding on, on what is meant by that term? Salami slicing is when China is is doing something very gradually and they're they're sort of pushing the envelope and you know doing an activity that is challenging the norms it's challenging the status quo but doing it very gradually over time and they're sort of trying to create new facts on the ground and that's what they did um, you know several years ago in the South China Sea when they created artificial islands and then they put uh, military assets, uh, airstrips and, you know, other facilities, military facilities there. They're trying to assert, again, their maritime claims. But another example of salami slicing tactics is what China has done on the border with India on the line of actual control. We see the same kind of thing. They're, They're trying to push you know, the bounds of that border uh, in a very gradual way and trying to basically make it a fait accompli, this new line of the the border. So we see China doing it in different places, but I think most prominently in the South China Sea. So really it's that tactic of gradually changing the status quo, but doing it in such a fashion that it doesn't create an escalated response. Yeah, they're doing it under the threshold of provoking a military response. And so it's a very, you know, calculated move. And that's why it's so important for the U.S., for Australia and other nations to find ways to push back and to be willing to take a bit of a risk and find creative ways to challenge that salami slicing. Because otherwise you get to a point where it's impossible to push back. Uh, They've already changed the facts on the ground. So it becomes very important for countries to be willing to push back in different ways. From a US perspective, how are they addressing Chinese grey zone activities or how are they pushing back in the maritime domain? I think if you look at the US Indo-Pacific strategy that was released in February 2022 by the uh, Biden White House is really about enhancing the US presence in the region, uh, diplomatic, economic, political, military. And this is really, you know, to ensure that the region remains free, open, transparent, and that countries in the region can protect their own sovereignty and independence. So making sure that China cannot coerce and intimidate the countries in the region through these aggressive maritime operations or gray zone activity is absolutely crucial for the foundation of the Indo-Pacific strategy. And, you know, if we, if we step back and we look at China's expansion of artificial islands in the South China Sea, its construction of logistics hubs, bases, airstrips, storage facilities. I think it's clear that the U.S. has really fallen behind and has a lot of catching up to do to prevent uh, Chinese military dominance in the region. And it is doing so. It's carrying out 
freedom of navigation operations. It's doing joint sales with partners and allies. So it's it's asserting that these uh, seaways are free and open, accessible uh, to everyone, and backing countries like the Philippines when they face these challenges from China, restating the importance of the 2016 arbitral ruling, which said that China's expansive maritime claims, trying to claim the nine-dash line uh, as illegal. The U.S. is doing this, and, you know, these are important avenues. And, And the last thing I would mention is the U.S. helping other nations build up their own coast guards and their own uh, maritime domain awareness capabilities. Because in the end, it's the countries themselves that have to defend their waters. So giving them the capabilities they need, empowering them to stand up to China is really the best thing the United States can do. And on that point of, you know, standing up to Chinese activities, we've certainly seen a, a what seems to be a change from the Philippines in terms of their approach. You know, notably the uh, publicisation and the exposure of the Chinese Coast Guard vessel, Water Canning, uh, Philippines vessel in August, uh, the recent cutting of the barrier that China laid around Scarborough Shoal to prohibit Philippine fishing vessels from entering there. There's clearly this change in approach from the Philippines. What do you think has driven that? Well, I think it has a lot to do with the new Philippines leadership. President Marcos Jr. has really shown a willingness to um, stand up to China, to, you know, speak out about the importance of the 2016 arbitral ruling. The former President Duterte was not even willing to do that. So there seems to be a recognition. And and I think it started when, uh, you know, the Whitson Reef situation that I referred to earlier in 2021 when China was amassing uh, fishing vessels in that region. I think, you know, you saw other parts of the Philippines government uh, recognizing that, you know, this was threatening Philippine sovereignty and national security. And then by the time Marcos Jr. came to power a year ago, he quickly showed that he was going to, you know, stand up for Philippine sovereignty and, was going to push back. And, you know, we've seen that manifested in first the willingness to, you know, strengthen the U.S.-Philippines alliance, uh, the fact that during his visit to the United States about six months ago, a commitment to allow the U.S. access to more military bases in the Philippines, including a base in northern Luzon province, just you know, 150 miles from Taiwan. Uh, so that's showing um, a willingness to partner more closely with the United States and you know push back against China. But I think one of the best examples of this was what you referred to, which happened just a few weeks ago. The Philippines really took a page out of the Chinese playbook. They disguised their Coast Guard uh, officials as fishermen. And they destroyed a string of buoys that was acting as a barrier to Filipino fishermen being able to access these disputed waters that are really just 120 miles from Philippines territory. And, you know, this was a a clear example 
of the Philippines playing the Chinese at their own game and pushing back in a very creative way. It didn't mean that they opened the way for Philippines fishermen to be able to access these waters, but they made a statement. So it, I think it's it's welcome. I think that there was a need for the Philippines to push back, and it's better when the Philippines does it themselves. The U.S. certainly can um, make statements in support of what they're doing, and in fact, the U.S. flew surveillance drones over the Philippines vessels when they were seeking to resupply the Sierra Madre in September last month. So that was a very tangible way of of supporting them. But really, it's better when the Philippines themselves are making the statement or doing the action. I think that is a much more powerful statement uh, to China and to the rest of the region. You know, if the rest of the region can see the Philippines standing up on their own, I think it will encourage them to do the same. So we've talked a lot about gray zone activities, actions the U.S. is taking within the region to counter them, and the role of states that are experiencing this and what is effectively bullying um, and how they respond. And we've talked about some examples in the Philippines. What do you think Australia's role is as a regional power in terms of countering these grey zone tactics and and effectively calling out this behaviour? I think Australia is already doing some things that are helpful. Australia is conducting surveillance flights in the South China Sea, usually as part of multilateral military exercises. The Australian Navy is increasingly conducting Uh, presence operations in the South China Sea, which is also very helpful. But perhaps, you know, Australia could do even more when it comes to counter disinformation programs. This is so important. Uh, The Chinese are expert at manipulating the information environment that sort of facilitates uh, what they're trying to do in asserting their their maritime claims. And, you know, I I would commend to you a report that came out recently from uh, the State Department, its Global Engagement Center, on Chinese influence operations. And it sort of spells out how they do it, you know, how they systematically are able to manipulate information environments uh, to their advantage. So I think it's important to get that information out there uh, to explain what's happening. And, you know, that's an important piece that I think Australia could contribute to as well. We know Australia has an important voice. We saw how the Chinese acted so strongly when Australia called for an independent investigation into the origins of COVID-19 in 2020. So clearly, Australia's voice can be very important in in pushing back on this kind of activity the Quad, Australia's role in the Quad is so important, and we have the the Quad Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness Initiative, uh, so moving forward with that. And, you know, looking at the Indian Ocean region, because as I said before, we're clearly not seeing the same kind of gray zone activity there, but we could in the very near future. And, you know, we've started to see signs of unhelpful behavior by the Chinese trying to assert their power in this region as well. So I think, you know, seeing Australia focus more attention on the Indian Ocean region and trying to work with India. Of course, you know, this is a region where India feels it has primary domain. So, of course, you know, working closely with India 
But I think that could be very helpful if Australia focused more resources on the Indian Ocean region. It has been really interesting to watch in the last couple of years as Australia and India have become closer particularly in a a military sense. So we've had uh, Indian P-8s operating from Australia, Australian P-8s operating from India. We had uh, the recent exercise Malabar, which is the Quad Maritime Security Exercise, which has a a very interesting history, actually conducted in Australia uh, this year. Do you think there is a lot of room to continue to, to grow that relationship between the two in the maritime security field? I do. Um, I think it's remarkable the progress that we've seen in the India-Australia relationship in just the last few years. You know, it's really been across the board, whether it's trade, critical minerals, you know, uh, diplomacy, political cooperation. Really, we've seen that relationship um, grow uh, so much in the last few years. And, you know, there are opportunities in the maritime realm In fact, there was a statement recently by General Bilton, the Joint Operations Commander of Australia, indicating that, yes, the cooperation was increasing between India and Australia and the Indian Ocean region, but it wasn't where it should be and that um, both countries could do more to um, leverage their resources and enhance their joint you know, maritime domain awareness um, in this region. So I think, you know, that was a, a subtle point being made about the fact that they could do so much more together. And, you know, India is sensitive. It's a, you know, rising power that values its independence or its strategic autonomy, as, as Indian leaders often refer to it. So that's something that um, has to be taken into account. But... You know, I think they recognize that China is coming into their region. They know they're going to see more and more Chinese vessels circulating. They know the Chinese have developed this close relationship with Sri Lanka. So I think they're they're more welcoming of an Australian role, U.S. role in, you know, making sure that region stays stable, free and open so, yeah, I think there are, you know, a lot of opportunities uh, for Australia and India to do more together because they've now built this very strong foundation for the relationship. So turning uh, just back to the South China Sea and just back onto that topic of the grey zone activities, one of the traditional challenges of, of countering grey zone is how you balance the risk of escalation versus the need to deter In August, when the incident happened, where, uh, again, as we've mentioned before, a Chinese Coast Guard vessel, a water cannon, a Philippine vessel resupplying the Sierra Madre at 2nd Thomas Shoal, the Australian Defence Minister uh, visited uh, the Philippines just after that and talked about joint patrols between Australia and the Philippines. And so there's been a lot of discussion about, well, do you bolster some of these activities with US, Australia, Japan uh, military vessels? But some of the commentary talks about, well, is that escalating the situation? So I'm interested in your thoughts on how do you balance that risk of escalation versus the need to respond and and attempt to deter some of this activity? I think we have to consider strategies that are aimed at countering gray zone activities as important to overall deterrence. And we should be aware that the more we allow China to break international norms and to get away with its salami slicing tactics, the greater the chance of conflict. So it's important to to push back now 
and not wait until the situation turns, you know, clearly in China's favor and Chinese positions have become even more entrenched um, and see that as actually having the potential to escalate chances of conflict. So I think it's important to respond. And the risks can be taken, but they should be calculated risks. You know, I'll come back to the idea that it's better when the country itself can do the responding and can be the one pushing back. If the U.S. You know, or Australia you know, has to get involved, then so be it. But um, I think giving the countries the tools and the encouragement um, and the confidence to push back on their own is a, you know, a bit safer way to challenge the, the Chinese actions. I think we have to be willing to, to take some risk. We have to be willing to be creative, but we, we should be calculated about it and not get in a situation where there's going to be a miscalculation. And, you know, we have to increasingly think about that, right? You know, when you talk about having U.S. surveillance drones around, you know, Philippines, ships that are resupplying areas in disputed territories, you know, you're, you're getting into a situation where there could be a miscalculation and an escalation toward conflict. You know, everybody's talking about the Taiwan Strait and the chance of conflict. I actually think that in the South China Sea, there's probably a greater chance for some kind of near-term, not conflict, but a miscalculation that could lead to some kind of limited conflict. So I think we do need to be aware of that and we need to be calculated about how we respond, not let things get out of hand. And when possible, allow the country whose sovereignty is being impinged upon, let them respond. We've spoken a lot about responses. One of the things we haven't touched on yet that I'd just like to pick your brain on is regional responses. When the 2016 Arbitral Tribunal came down with their decision, uh, a lot of people thought this would be quite groundbreaking for Southeast Asia. But most countries were relatively silent on the issue. But I know in the last six months, a number of countries have come out in support of it. Do you think the view in the region to China's grey zone tactics is starting to change, resulting in countries becoming more vocal on the subject? Yeah, I think... We do see countries becoming more vocal. India, for the first time, has voiced support for the uh, 2016 arbitral ruling uh, recently. And, you know, that's very helpful. And I think when countries see the Philippines pushing back, when they see that the U.S. has the Philippines back and is there, that means something. So it does sort of build up confidence and more resilience within the region to deal with the issue. And, you know, as we were talking about, the Philippines isn't the only country impacted. Vietnam has faced Chinese maritime aggression and Indonesia even, you know, has faced it in North Natuna, Malaysia, Brunei. You know, they all have examples of let's call it Chinese bullying, maritime bullying. And so I think there is a willingness to see the importance of talking about the 2016 arbitral ruling and how important that was. And the more 
countries give voice to that um, and put that out there, the more meaningful it is. Because like you said, it's great, the ruling's there, but if nobody's going to use it and refer to it, then it's not going to mean much. So yeah, hopefully we will see references to the ruling more and more. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. It's been fantastic to have you on the Saltwater Strategist today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. We want to extend our sincere thanks to Lisa Curtis from the Center for New American Security, CNAS. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing, and following Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, navalinstitute.com.au, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our sponsor, BAE Systems Australia, whose support is vital to bringing you these timely, important discussions on maritime security. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.